Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. To a lot of people outside of our state, California is one of two places. It's either L.A. or San Francisco, Hollywood or high tech, the beaches or the redwoods. And frankly, to a lot of Californians who live here, there's a vast stretch of our state between L.A. and San Francisco that people basically consider drive through country. The San Joaquin Valley, stretching from the Sierra to the Coastal Range, from Stockton to Bakersfield. It's a place that culturally, politically, and geographically could almost be its own state. It's the other California. El otro California. I live California, California, California. California. I live California. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Today, we're going to devote our show to a new podcast from our friends at KVPR that explores the richness of the San Joaquin Valley, and it's called The Other California. We were thirsty all together. We were hungry all together. We were tired all together. Everybody had to pull their weight. Farm workers are the hardest working people on the planet, and they deserve more than what they've been provided. Each episode of the Other California podcast takes us to a different small town in the San Joaquin Valley. And we're going to play you a few of those stories, starting with one about Chowchilla, which is off Highway 99. It's about 40 miles north of Fresno. We're going to meet a woman who found unexpected fame as a rodeo star there. Her name is Sammy Thurman Brackenberry, and she's in her late 80s. Growing up, her dad had a ranch nearby, and she first started as a barrel racer, which is traditionally a women's sport. It involves racing a horse around barrels in a kind of cloverleaf pattern. KVPR's Alice Daniel, who hosts the podcast, met Sammy at the Chowchilla Western Stampede, where she was being honored for her decades as a barrel racer. I won the world in 1965. I qualified 12 times for the national finals. But Sammy didn't just do barrel racing. She was also a team roper in a sport that at the time was all men. See, I roped with my dad. We competed in the Rodeo Cowboys Association rodeos. And at the time, women couldn't join as a contestant. She was friends with someone high up in the Cowboys Association, and he told her to just enter. And if anyone gave her a hard time, he would deal with them. We won second at Salinas, uh, and I, I placed right here. She says she wasn't a cowgirl, but what people then called a cowboy girl, which was considered more prestigious. Because I roped with my dad and did everything the boys do. For the first time, you'll actually see what the cowboy and his horse are like. 
as you live their real-life adventures on the open range. And starting in her early 20s, Sammy also acted in movies and westerns, including the Disney movie Horse of the West, where she played the... The lovely, versatile, talented Elena Vasquez, a name that is legend in California ranching history. Sammy is part Choctaw, part Latina. So this isn't a case of a white woman playing a Latina, which happened a lot back then. And Sammy didn't just act. Her first marriage was to a stuntman. I started doing stunts, and I did stunts for years and rodeoed too. In the 1980 movie, Nine to Five, Sammy was Dolly Parton's double. I think I'd like to just come riding up one day and give him a taste of his own medicine. Nine to Five is a satire about three secretaries who get revenge on their egotistical, sexist boss, Frank. In this scene, Dolly tells her co-workers about a fantasy where she rides a horse to the office and treats Frank like he treats her in real life, a sex object. Frank, I'm warning you, come back here. No, I won't. And he's out of the shoes, ladies and gentlemen. He's out of the shoes. Look at him. That's a big bull hitter from a high-class tower. Now Miss Dora Lee Rose. At the end of the scene, Dolly, well, Sammy, lassos Frank and ties him up like a cat. Now let's see how long it takes you to hog tie this sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Five seconds, ladies and gentlemen, just five seconds. But Sammy says she had the most fun doing stunts in the movie Comes a Horseman. I was doubling Jane. She doubled for Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda as Ella. You're free to pack it in anytime you want. Woman enough to go it alone in a man's world. So how do they do that? Do they put like a big ponytail? Guess what? She wore falsies. Okay, if she says so. But she did. She wore falsies to match me. And you know, usually the the stunt person matches the actor, you yes, know. Your best, your best stunt person is somebody that's plain Jane and has no boobs because they can put all that stuff on. <laughs> Doesn't matter what your hair is, if it's long or short, they can fix that too. <laughs> her daughter Jody rolls her eyes, but Sammy says not to worry. Jane wouldn't care. She's super, but I wasn't a real good double for her, but I had to rope. There wasn't nobody else out there that could rope, like I could, or even in, for that matter at all. I'm not sure how to fact check this. I tried to ask via Twitter, but that wasn't successful. I have to wonder what it was like for Jody having a mother who was a rodeo star. Being the rodeo star was probably easier than when we would walk into a restaurant, they thought she was Elizabeth Taylor. They just knew she was a movie star or something. Embarrassed me absolutely to death. And like Elizabeth Taylor, Sammy's been married many times, seven to be exact. Jody says her mom told her that in her day... You had to marry him if you were going to sleep with him, man. It's different now. Now she's married to a man who is her junior. Yep, to a guy that's 21 years younger than me. And she's been married to him longer than all the other ones together. He's mostly retired now, she says. He was a wrangler in the business. and uh, But he's retired now, and we have cattle, and we were open. <laughs> And I'm the boss. Spoken like a true cowboy girl. That was Alice Daniel, who's the host and creator of the new podcast from KVPR called The Other California. 
The show is produced with help from a team of reporters who all have deep roots in the San Joaquin Valley. And I'm here with Alice and with Kathleen Schock, who reported a story we're going to hear a little bit later in the show. Hey there, you guys. Hey, Sasha. Hello. So, Alice, you're the only one producing this podcast who actually didn't grow up in the San Joaquin Valley. You moved there by choice to this part of California that people often trash or make fun of. What brought you there? So I came to the Valley when my husband, Ben, got a job as a music professor at Fresno State. And we were moving from Knoxville, Tennessee at the time, which is a very lush, rainy place. And to come to this dry, hot landscape was really a bit of a culture shock for me. And one of the things I wanted to do in this podcast is sort of set up the idea of home and what home means and how you make home out of places that maybe seem so different from what, you know, from where you thought you might live. So we start the podcast with me talking about coming to Fresno. Houses were still affordable then, and we found a two-bedroom bungalow with a porch and high ceilings. Back in Knoxville, we packed up our stuff, put our two cats in the car, and followed the ribbon of Interstate 40 across the country. Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and then through the Mojave Desert, up over the Tehachapi Pass and down into Bakersfield, where we hit the dusty, busy spine of the east side of the San Joaquin Valley, Highway 99, a major thoroughfare of the other California. Like my cats, I went kicking and screaming. I made up a cheer that goes like this. F-R-E-S-N-O, N-O, N-O, no, no! The cats meowing and growling in the back seat. I love that, and I can totally relate to it because, as you know, and as some of our listeners may know, I lived in and reported from the San Joaquin Valley for the California Report for many years. And I came to defend the place, but I remember when I first moved there, I had a very similar experience. I was a city girl. I'd grown up in L.A. I was coming from the Bay Area. I really didn't understand this part of the state. It is so different from the coast. It is another California, or as you call this podcast, the other California. I've often talked about it as an island within California, a place that is isolated, that is forgotten, um, and that is forced to be self-reliant in ways that other parts of the state are not. And, and so I think that this term, the other California, is, is a really fitting one. You know, the isolation of the valley, it's one of the things that uh, makes this place such a beautiful place in terms of how we take care of one another, how we build community, how we support one another. The podcast really gets to um, some of those corners of this region that too often have just been dismissed. One of the places you visited, Kathleen, is the community of Fairmead, which is a tiny spot on the map that a lot of folks might miss driving up or down Highway 99, but it is a historically Black community and it's got a fascinating history. Let's play some of your episode on Fairmead. I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but honestly, Fairmead isn't much to look at. It's basically just a couple of churches, a school, and a collection of homes surrounded by agricultural fields. 
arguably its biggest claim to recent fame, was the old Mammoth Orange hamburger stand on Highway 99, and it was torn down more than 20 years ago. We moved all the chairs around here. I'm here in Fairmead at the home of Barbara Nelson to attend the monthly board meeting of Fairmead Community and Friends, a nonprofit advocacy group Barbara co-founded with Vicki Ortiz and Elaine Moore. Elaine lets herself in the back door, precariously balancing a homemade cherry cobbler. I had to go change clothes before I got here. I spilled the cobbler juice all down the front of my oh, jumper. You, you did cobbler, huh? Yeah, I have. There are about 10 of us here. Not a big crowd, but more than enough to fill Barbara's small home. It feels more like a potluck than a board meeting of people trying to improve their community. The eclectic group, young, old, black, white, Latino, has the easy rapport of old friends. <laughs> because Fairmead is classified as a census-designated place, there's no mayor or city council. Instead, there's Barbara, Vicki, and Elaine. These women are the voice of the roughly 1,100 people who call Fairmead home. Elaine, who is married to a longtime almond farmer, describes it as community service rooted in friendship. You have to do is let them know you need help, and they're here. Yeah. You know, whether it's a disaster or it's a happy time and we're going to have a party, it's just, it's a camaraderie, it's true friendship. doesn't matter what color your skin is, what language you have. These three women, one white, one black, and one uh, Hispanic, have, have kind of become the soul and the face of Fairmead. That's Michael Isinger. He's a historian and cultural anthropologist who wrote a book called Fairmead, A Century of Change. The primary focus, and especially of these three ladies, was to try to build community. They weren't worried about politics. They weren't worried about anything else. They wanted to build a sense of community. But in order to understand Fairmead today, it's helpful to start at the beginning. Because as Michael writes in his book, the history of Fairmead is both unique and emblematic. In the early 1900s, large companies based in L.A. and San Francisco owned much of the agricultural land in the San Joaquin Valley. And in an effort to turn a profit, a movement emerged among these companies to develop small towns, known as colonies, and sell off the plots to family farmers. In Fairmead's case, the parcels were marketed to Mennonite families in Germany and Russia on the promise of ample sunshine, fertile soil, and abundant water. It was a planned community. It had a hotel where the, the first couple of years on their Thanksgiving dinners, they had anywhere between five and 1,500 people coming to have Thanksgiving dinner at this hotel. Dignitaries from all over the state would stop. They had the, a French chef they brought in from Paris. I mean, this is, we're talking Fairmead, right? In his book, Michael writes that at its start, Fairmead's future was as bright as any community in California. So you're probably asking yourself, what happened? The answer, at least according to him, is water. Fairmead doesn't have a lake, and there are no rivers running through town. So all that abundant water promised to those European settlers had to be pumped from the ground, which worked fine at first, but by the 1920s, farmers were having to dig their wells hundreds of feet into the earth to suck up the rapidly shrinking aquifer. At a certain point, it all just stopped making sense. And they reached a point where most of the whites that lived there 
said, to hell with this, and they bailed. And we had massive white flight. Chowchilla was being built just north of it. It started just a few years after Fairmead, but it had water. So all the whites moved from Fairmead into Chowchilla. This is where Fairmead's fate took a turn. With the white population gone, along with much of the groundwater, property values plummeted. But a speculator named Jacob Yakel saw an opportunity. He bought up most of Fairmead and sold the plots directly to black farmers. Now, this was a big deal because at that time, most communities used restrictive housing covenants to prevent black people, along with many other ethnic groups, from buying property. But according to Michael, Fairmead meant black people could own their own homes and establish their own communities, thanks to Jacob Yakel. They loved this man dearly because he would sell them his property at market rates. He didn't mark it up, he sold it to him fairly. And that's how. But for example, the Williams family were able to acquire enough land around Fairmead that by the 1950s, they had the largest dairy in California. The single largest dairy in the state of California was black owned by the Williams family in Fairmead. Michael says it was a smart use of the land because dairies didn't need as much water as crops. So that's how it came to be that on this dry, dusty land a few miles south of Chowchilla, a thriving black enclave was built. From the 1920s through the 1960s, Fairmead remained predominantly black, home to families like Barbara Nelson's. A lot of black folks start coming, moving here, buying property. My in-laws is one of them. The, the Nelsons, the Mitchells, the Amys, the Williams, they was buying 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 acres. Land was cheap. And then... Um, Cotton was here. People was picking cotton. I grew up picking cotton, cutting grapes, because I tell my kids now that we were the farm workers, the African-Americans. We worked out here. The story of Fairmead reminds us that the Valley's agricultural history involves so much more than those iconic Dorothea Lange photos of white migrants driven west by the Dust Bowl. In reality, many people, including white, black, Japanese, Mexican, and Filipino farm workers, labor to turn this region into the world's food basket. But things started to shift in Fairmead following the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. According to Michael Isinger, that's when Fairmead's population started to transform from predominantly Black to predominantly Hispanic. Why? Because in 1965, Chowchilla had to allow its first Black people to move in. And so people were, had, had options. Whereas now these poor communities are absorbing a new population and they are having the same issues of water and isolation and food deserts that these earlier communities struggled with. Barbara Nelson wasn't around for the shift in population that Michael just described. She and her husband Clyde left the valley in the mid-60s and called the Bay Area home for roughly 40 years. But after Clyde retired, they decided to move back to Fairmead to care for their aging parents. And when they arrived, Barbara was shocked by what she found. But when I came back to Fairmead in 2005, and we didn't have a store, and I noticed Fairmead just was pitiful. I hadn't seen no change. And I said, God, I need to make a difference. So I got with another resident, and we started talking about it, and we came up with this group. Barbara's made a lot of, uh, of friends when she started mm -hmm. this up. 
That's Vicki Ortiz from Fairmead Community and Friends. She moved here because it was one of the few places in the Valley where she could still find affordable property. But she quickly learned that living in such a rural area meant the community was largely on its own when it came to solving problems. Being unincorporated, you don't know who to go to. If a fire hydrant or water opens up, they can't get a hold of the county. They can't get a hold of the fire. Barbara, (laughs) you know, what do we do? So, you know, we start looking for numbers and and, and do that so they know who to go to. You know, they can't find Barbara. Barbara say, we'll call Vicki or... And, and, you know, we, we connect them. Over the years, Fairmead Community and Friends have taken on a lot more than fire hydrants with their advocacy. When the only community well went dry, they helped secure federal grants to rebuild the water system. Then when high-speed rail announced the tracks would be running right through Fairmead, they fought successfully to keep the community whole. You know, we, we didn't want to threaten or make a stink or anything, but, you know, when they originally started, they were going to cut out the church, they were going to cut out the school, and then with us saying something, trying to be the voice, they pushed it farther. It's getting late by the time the evening wraps up. They insist I take a bowl to go of Elaine's cherry cobbler. But before I leave, I have a parting question for Barbara. As one of the only residents of Fairmead who could remember when it was an almost all-Black settlement, I asked if she felt an obligation to preserve that history. I, I do, you know, but it's not many of us left here. Most of them are moving out. So that's why during the Black history time, when we have to keep that alive and keep going with that, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important to show that we was here was the one who planted the cotton and did our part here and prepared me to make it what it is, too. We don't want to ever forget that. That was Kathleen Shock with an excerpt from the new podcast, The Other California. And Kathleen, what Barbara's saying there about how important it is to recognize that a lot of the early California farm workers were Black, that's a story that you and your family have a personal connection with. Tell us about that. My dad came to the Central Valley by way of the Great Migration, how so many Black Americans moved from the South to um, the North or to the West to pursue opportunities. So when my dad was four, they learned that they had family members outside of Fresno who owned property, which was a really rare thing for uh, Blacks to be able to own property in the 1940s. So they came out to live on the property, my dad and his six siblings and his parents. And they spent his entire childhood living there in a tent, working in the fields. Um, And it was a childhood that is, you know, almost unrecognizable to me, you know, the level of poverty that they faced. My dad and his siblings were incredible students. They did really, really well in school, even though at that time, education wasn't seen as an opportunity to uh, advance yourself economically if you were Black. And so my dad and, and his siblings, they all went to school and all did very well professionally as a result. My dad was a physician, and he made a completely different life possible for me. Anyway, so I, yeah, I grew up in Fresno and um, couldn't wait to leave like many kids who grew up here. And it was actually my job as a journalist that brought me back to Fresno. I got a job offer here and settling down was on the agenda. And so I did, and I have a very different appreciation for this place than I did growing up here. 
The Other California podcast also takes us to a farm worker town about an hour and a half from Fairmead. It's called Wood Lake, and it's just below Sequoia National Park. It's got a beautiful view of the mountains. And I know that because my mother-in-law's from there. I visited a lot. It's a place where, Alice, you did an episode about the Wukchumni language, which is spoken by the Wukchumni tribe. That's right, Sasha. There are about 200 Wukchumni in Tulare County, and they're part of a broader Yokut group of tribes native to Central California. The person speaking Wukchumni in that audio is Marie Wilcox, who passed away last year. At one time, she was the last fluent speaker of Wukchumni, but she taught some of her relatives the language, and for years, pecked away at a computer one letter at a time to write a Wukchumni dictionary. I spoke with someone who is carrying on Marie's legacy, her daughter, Jennifer Malone. Her grandma passed away when she was, when my mom was seven years old. And, and that's why to me it amazes me how she remembered all of these words, you know, and to be able to put into a dictionary because she was just seven. In 2014, the New York Times published this documentary about Marie, who lived in an old wooden house on a country road just outside of Woodlake. My name is uh, Marie Wilcox. My grandmother delivered me Thanksgiving Day on November 24th, 1933. The documentary is called Who Speaks Wakchumni? We only had a little one-room house. Grandpa and Grandma always spoke our language, Wakchumni. Marie also recorded folk tales in Wakchumni. The one she's sharing in the documentary now describes how humans got their hands from lizards. You know, this podcast, The Other California, travels to so many different small towns around the valley. And we meet these amazing people in each of these towns. Like in the town of Huron, you meet this really dynamic young Chicano mayor who's started this fleet of electric vehicles to transport farm workers around. You go to the Yamato colony, which was a farming community in the town of Livingston, founded by Japanese immigrants back in the early 1900s. I learned so much from listening to this podcast, and I'm someone who lived and reported from the Central Valley for so many years, but you guys go to places that I never even visited, never even knew about. What do you hope that people across the state will take away from this podcast? What I hope is that people can develop a greater appreciation for how hard the people here work and how our contributions contribute not only to the rest of California, but to the entire world. Um, There's a lot of challenges that we face as a region, but there's an equal amount of beauty here. And hopefully the podcast will shine a light on some of that. I agree with Kathleen. I hope that listeners will see that the San Joaquin Valley is an important part of the state with its own quirks and charms, and that it's also different from anywhere else in the United States. There's, there's not another place like it, and I feel fortunate to be able to tell its stories. 
Alice Daniel and Kathleen Schock from KVPR. Their podcast is called The Other California, and it's produced by Alice Daniel with help from the KVPR news team, Marie Bolaños, Sarith Hawk, and Carrie Klein. Sound designed by Rob Spate with original music for the podcast from Omar Naray. Editorial help from Polly Stryker with technical and web support from Don Weaver and Alex Burke. The Other California is made possible with support from Cal Humanities. And the California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our producer-director is Susie Racho, and Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. Our team also includes Amy Mayer, Amanda Font, and Izzy Bloom. And I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.